everybody. Welcome to episode 265 of Greater Than Code. My name is Mandy Moore, and I'm here with our guest panelist, Dave Bach. Hi, I'm David Bach, and I am here with our usual co-host, Artie Stark. Thank you, Dave. And I'm here today with our guest, Emily Haggard. Emily is graduating from Virginia Tech with a bachelor's in computer science this December, so congratulations. She has a wide variety of experience in technology, from web development to kernel programming and even network engineering and cybersecurity. She is an active member of her community, having founded a cybersecurity club for middle schoolers. And in her free time, she enjoys playing Dungeons and Dragons and writing novels. Welcome to the show, Emily. Thank you. So our first question we always ask is, what is your superpower and how did you acquire it? So I spent some time thinking about this, and I would say that my superpower is that I'm a good teacher. And what that means is that the people who come to me with questions, you know, wanting to learn something, I, number one, my goal is to help them understand. And number two, I think it's very important to make sure that whatever gap we have in our experience doesn't matter and that they don't feel that so that they could be, you know, my six-year-old brother and I'm trying to teach him like algebra or something and he doesn't feel like he is the six-year-old trying to learn algebra. I'll echo that sentiment uh, about being a good teacher. Actually, on, on two fronts, Emily. First of all, I am teaching your brother now in high school. And just the other day, he credited you towards giving him a lot of background knowledge about the course and the curriculum before we ever started the class. So he seconds that you're a good teacher. And then listeners might remember, I was on a few weeks ago talking about my nonprofit. And Emily was there at the beginning of me starting to volunteer in high schools. In fact, the way I met Emily, it was uh, the fall of 2014, the first time I was volunteering at Loudoun Valley High School. And one morning prior to class, there was going to be a meeting of a cybersecurity club. And there were a bunch of students milling about. And there was this sophomore girl sitting in front of a computer looking at a PowerPoint presentation of networking, IP addresses, how the like slash 24 of an IP address resolves and uh, just all that kind of detail, like it, it, like very low level detail about networking stuff. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. You know, that uh, I, I wouldn't, wouldn't have expected a, a sophomore girl to be so interested in the low level technical details of IP. And then the club started and she got up and started giving that presentation. That was not a slide deck she was reading. It was a slide deck she was creating. Thank you. I actually remember that. <laughs> So Emily, how did you acquire that superpower? I think it was out of necessity. So kind of going back to the, the story that David mentioned, in high school, there was a cybersecurity competition called Cyber Patriot that I competed in with, with friends. And one year, all of a sudden, they just introduced network engineering to the competition. We had to configure and troubleshoot a simulated network, and no one knew how to do that. So I kind of took it upon myself, one, to just figure it out so that my team could be competitive and win, you know. But then part of the way that I learn actually is kind of being able to teach something like that's how I grasp, know that I've understood something and I'm ready to move on to the next topic is like if I could teach this thing. And so actually I started out building all of that as a way to kind of condense my notes and condense my knowledge so that it, you know, stick in my head for the competition. And I just realized like it's already here. I should share this. And so that's how I started there. And teaching network engineering to high schoolers that don't have any background knowledge is really hard. So it kind of forced me to put it in terms that would make sense and take away like the really technical aspects of it. And I think that sort of built the teaching skill. That relates to the uh, club you started at the middle school for a cyber patriot. How did that start? That was initially a desire to have a capstone project and get out of high school a few weeks early. But I was sitting there with my friend and thinking about, okay, well, we need to do something that actually helps people. You know, what should we do? Like some people are going out and they're painting murals in schools or, or gardening. It's like, well, we don't really like being outside and we're not really artistic. But what we do have is a lot of technical knowledge from all this work with Cyber Patriot. And we know that Cyber Patriot has a middle school competition. So we actually approached the middle school. We had a, a sit down with, I think, the, the dean at our local middle school. And we talked about what Cyber Patriot was and, you know, what we wanted to do with the students, which was have them bust over to the high school so we could teach them as sort of like an after school program. And I guess I guess we convinced him. And so, you know, 
couple months later, they're busing students over for us to teach. Wow. That's, and did they ever participate in competitions as middle schoolers? Yes, they did. Very cool. Yeah. Can you go into what those competitions are like? I don't think uh, most of the audience even knows that exists. Yeah, sure. So Cyber Patriot, it's kind of like a, it's a cybersecurity competition for predominantly high schoolers that's run by the Air Force. And you have a couple rounds throughout the year. I think it's like five or so. And at each round, you have six hours and you're given some virtual machines, which you have to secure and remove viruses from and things. And you get points for doing all of that. And um, they added on network simulation, which was with uh, some Cisco proprietary software, which would simulate your routers and your firewalls and everything. So you'd have to configure and troubleshoot that as well. And you would you would get points for the same thing. It built a lot of camaraderie with all of us, you know, having to sit there for six hours after school and like, we're getting tired. It's a Friday night. Like everyone's a little bit loopy and, you know, all we've eaten is pizza for six hours. <laughs> well, that's a good jump start to your career, I think. Yes, <laughs> for sure. So while in college, I'm, I'm guessing that, well, I'm, I'm assuming that you've been pretty impacted by COVID and doing, you know, in-person learning versus online learning. How's that been for you? I've actually found it pushes me to kind of challenge the status quo. So online college classes, for the most part, the lectures aren't that helpful. They're not that great. So I had to pick up a lot of skills and like learning to teach myself and like reading books and figuring out ways to discern, like, you know, if I needed to research something further, if I, if I really understood it yet or not, that's a really hard question to ask actually is if you don't have the knowledge, how do you know that you don't have that knowledge? And so that's something I kind of had, it's a skill that you have to work on. So that is something I developed over the time while we were online. And I've actually also done so I worked full-time for a year after high school, and I took mostly online classes at the community college. So those skills kind of started there, too. And then I just built on them when I came to Virginia Tech, and we had COVID happen. Actually, I'd like to ask about that community college time. I know you had an interesting path into Virginia Tech, uh, one that I'm really interested in for my own kids as well. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So I, you know, out of high school, always thought I'm going to, I'm a first-generation student. My parents did not go to college. They went to the military and grandparents before them. So I had always had it in my head that I'm going to go and get that four-year degree. That's what I want for myself. And kind of at the end of high school, I applied to Virginia Tech. I didn't have, I had a dream school. I wanted to go to Georgia Tech. They rejected me. Oh, well, that dream shot. I need to find something new. So I applied to Virginia Tech thinking it was going to be like a safe bet. You know, it's an in-state school. I was a very good student. You know, they would never reject me. And so I applied for the engineering program and I was rejected. They, they did admit me for the neuroscience program, but it wasn't going to be what I wanted. And I was realizing that I did not like either chemistry or biology. So that, that would never work. And then at the same time, because of my work with Cyber Patriot, I was able to kind of get an internship in network engineering at a college not too far from where I lived. And. After I graduated high school, they offered me a job as a network engineer, which I took because, you know, my team was fantastic. I really liked my manager and I was comfortable there. So I, I took this job and I said, OK, I'm going to keep working on the college thing because it's what I always wanted for myself. And so I, you know, I just signed up for a community college. And that was uh, pretty tough working full time and doing community college until 11 o'clock at night and getting up the next day and doing it all over again. And from there. I decided that Virginia Tech was going to be the best option for me, just from a very like logical perspective. I was never, I kind of thought Virginia Tech was a bit culty. I was never like really gung-ho about going, but it made the most sense being an in-state school that's very well known. So I, I worked through community college and I applied to Virginia Tech again after one year in community college and they rejected me again. So I was like, oh no, how do I do? And I realized I needed to make use of the guaranteed transfer program. So one of the really cool things in Virginia, at least, is that a lot of the state schools have agreements with the community college where if you get an associate's with a specific GPA, you can transfer into that program in the university and your transfer is guaranteed. They can't reject you. So it's like, aha, they can't get rid of me this time. Yeah, I, I did it. And it, it's kind of a messy process. I actually went into that in a, in a blog post on David's uh, has a nonprofit called Loud Codes. I, I wrote a blog post for his website and uh, detailed that entire. It being a transfer student is kind of hard because there's 
a lot of credits that may not get transferred over because Virginia Tech is a little bit, all four-year colleges are kind of a little bit elitist in their attitude towards community college. And they didn't take some of the credits that I had, which put me behind quite far, even though I had that knowledge. They just, they said I didn't. So that added on some extra time and, a, you know, some extra summer semesters while I was at Tech. Yeah, I did something similar with doing community college. And then, you know, so the what you're talking about with the whole kind of elitist sort of attitude, the transfer and having a whole bunch of your credits not transferring. And, you know, I, I'm definitely familiar with that whole experience. Yeah. And even now that I think about it, I remember community college too. Like it's built for one specific type of student, which is great. I think they're really good at helping people who need, who just weren't present or weren't able to kind of do the work and make the progress in high school. Like they're really good at helping those types of students. But as someone who did like a whole bunch of AP classes, had a, a crazy GPA, like they just didn't really know how to handle me. They said, okay, um, you've kind of tested out of pretty much all of our math classes, but you are still lacking some credits. So I had to take multivariable calculus in community college in order to get credit to replace the fact that I tested out of pre-cal and which was kind of silly, but in the long run, it was great because I hear, you know, multivariable calculus attack is pretty hard, but yeah, definitely there's a lot of kind of bureaucratic nonsense about college. Like it, education is important. It's great. I've learned a lot of things. But there's still all these old ways of thinking and people are just not ready for change in college a lot of the time. The people who make decisions, that is. Well, I'd like to ask a little bit about the computer science curriculum that you've had. And uh, the the angle I'm asking from, when I worked at Living Social, I worked with one of the first group of people that had graduated from our boot camp program. And had transferred from other careers, spent 12 weeks learning software engineering skills, and then, you know, were integrated with a, a group of software engineers at Living Social. And we would occasionally get into conversations about, well, you know, if I learned to be a software engineer in 12 weeks, what do you learn in four years of college? So we started to do these internal brown bags that were kind of like the Discovery Channel version of computer science. A lot of that material I've since recycled into the presentations I do at high school. Uh, but for you know, for your typical person who might have sidelined into this career from a, a a different perspective, what's been your curriculum like? I really liked the parts of the curriculum that had technical depth because coming into it at my level, that that's what I was lacking in certain areas. I had built the foundation really strong, but the the details of it I didn't have. And so the classes at Virginia Tech, like the the notorious systems class and a cybersecurity class, have taken the semester that have gone in detail with technology and, you know, pushed what I understood. Those were my most valuable classes. There was a lot of it that I would have been happy without <laughs> because I'm not sure it will apply so much to my life going forward. I'm, I'm a very practical person. I'm, you know, engineer mindset. I, I don't want to worry about things that can't actually be applied to the real world so much. And so, for me, this semester, actually, it's been really challenging because I've taken a data structures and algorithms class where we're talking about like, you know, NP complete versus NP hard and, you know, what it would mean if we could solve an NP complete problem in polynomial time. And um, it's really hard to care. It's really hard to see how that <laughs> <laughs> helps. It, it's interesting from like a pure math perspective, but it, you know coming into it kind of as someone who was already in the adult world and like very grounded, it feels like bloat. Yeah. That stuff is interesting if you're designing databases, but most yeah. of us are just using databases and that right. stuff is all kind of baked in Yeah, for the average, you know, person on a technical career path. We're far more interested in the business problems than the math problems. I'm curious too, like there's also lots of stuff that seems like it's missing in college curriculums from just really fundamental things that you need to know as a software engineer. So did you have things like source control and continuous integration? And like, I think back to my own college experience and I didn't learn about source control until I got out of college. <laughs> and and why is that? Why is that? It seems it seems so backwards because there's these fundamental things that we need to learn. And within four years, within four years, can we not somehow get that in the curriculum? And right. I'm, I'm wondering, I'm wondering what your experience has been like. Oh, my goodness. So Virginia Tech is, I think the CS department head 
is actually really good at being reflective because he he requires every se- senior to take like a, a seminar class as they exit. It's like a one credit class. You know, it's mostly just feedback for the school. And I think it's really cool because he asked all of us to make a presentation, just record ourselves talking over some slides about like our experience and the things we would change. And, you know, that, that really impressed me that this guy who gets to make so many decisions is listening to the people who are just kind of peons in the system. And what I said was that there are certain classes that they give background knowledge. Like there's one in particular where it's essentially the, the closest crossover we have with the electrical engineering department. And it's really painful as someone who works with software to try and put myself in a hardware mindset, like working with AND gates, OR gates and all that, and trying to deal with like these simulated chips. It's awful. And then it never comes back. You know, we never talk about it again in the curriculum. And it's a prerequisite for the systems class, which has nothing at all to do with that, really. And I said, because I, this segues into another thing. So I've had an internship while I've been at Virginia Tech that's uh, sort of like a, a web consultant role or web development consultant role with uh, a company called Acceleration. They run a just a small office in Blacksburg, and they, they have a really cool business model. They take students at Virginia Tech and at, at Radford, a neighboring school, and they have us work with clients on real software development projects. And they, you know, they pair us with, with mentors who have, you know, five, 10 years of experience as software consultants. And we get to learn all those things that school doesn't teach us. So that's actually how I learned Git and, and Scrum and Kanban and all that stuff that isn't taught in college, even now. And I went back to the CS department head and I said, replace that class with a class that teaches us Git, Scrum, Kanban, and just like, even just a brief overview of like Docker and AWS and like the concepts so that people have a foundation when they try to go to work and they're trying to read all this documentation or they're asked to build like a, a container image and they have no idea what it's talking about or what it's for. Yeah, I going back to your original question, no, I didn't learn version control in college. But the weird thing is that I was expected to know it in my classes without ever being taught it because they they have, especially in the upper level, like 3004 level or thousand level classes, they have you work on on group projects where Git is essential. And, you know, some of them, especially the Capstone project are, are long term projects and you really need to use Scrum or use some sort of methodology rather than just that, you know, how you would treat a two-week project. And actually, it's interesting because David was my, my sponsor on my capstone project in college, and he really helped my team with the whole project planning and, like, sprint planning and just understanding how how Scrum and all that works and what it's for. Yeah, I just shared a link that is a, a series of videos from MIT called The Missing Semester of Your Computer Science Education that talks about Git and version control and command line using the bash shell stuff about, uh, you know, using a database, uh, how to use a, a debugger, you know, just all that, all that kind of stuff that is stuff that you're kind of expected to know, but never formally taught. What about unit testing? Okay. So that's an interesting exception to the rule, but I don't think they really carried it through through my entire experience at tech. So in the, the earlier classes, we were actually forced to write unit tests. That was part of our, our assignments. And they would look to see that we had one, like, I think we had to have 100% testing coverage or like very close to it. So that was good. But then it kind of dropped away as we went to the upper level classes. And, you know, you just had to be a good programmer. And you had to know to like test small chunks of your code because we'd have these massive projects. And, you know, there would be a testing framework to see if the entire thing worked, but there was no unit testing really. Whereas at work, you know, in my internship, you know, unit tests are, are paramount. Like, <laughs> we, we put a huge emphasis on that. So earlier, Emily, you had mentioned teaching people that had no experience at all. And the challenge of trying to be able to help and support people in learning to understand regardless of what their gap was in existing experience. So what are some of the ideas, principles? you know, things that you've learned on how to do that effectively? That's a really tough question because I've kind of worked on building intuition rather than a set of rules. But I think a few of the major things probably are thinking about it long enough beforehand because there's always a lot of background and context that they need, right? 
usually you don't want to present a, a solution before you've presented the problem. And so it's important to just spend time thinking about that and especially how you're going to order concepts. Like I've noticed too, with some of the best teachers I've had in college is they were very careful with the order in which they introduce topics to build the necessary context. And that's something that's really important with complete beginners. And the thing is you have to, sometimes you have to build that context very quickly, which the best trick I have for that is just to create an analogy that has nothing to do with technology at all. Create it out of a shared experience that you have or something that you know they've, they've probably experienced. Like a lot of times analogies for IP addressing use like the mailing service, like, you know, houses on a street and things like that. Things that are common to our experience. I guess maybe that's like kind of the foundation of it is you're trying to figure out what you have in common with this person that can take them from where they are to where you are currently. And that that requires a lot of social skills and intuition and practice. So yeah, that, that's a, a really good observation because one of the things I find teaching high school, and this has been a skill I've had to learn, is being able to put my mindset in the point of view of the student that, you know, I need to go to where they are and use a good metaphor or analogy to bring them up a step. And that's a, a real challenge to be able to, you know, strip away all the knowledge I have and be like, oh, this must be the understanding of the problem they have. And try to figure out how to walk them forward. Yeah. That's a valuable skill. I think that's really rewarding, though, because when I, I see in their eyes that they've understood it, or, you know, I, I watch them solve the problem, then I know that I did it well. And that's really rewarding. It's like, okay, cool. I, I got them to where I wanted them to be. Reminds me, I, I was helping out mentoring college students for a while. And I had really been involved with college for a really long time. And I was working with folks that knew very, very little. And it was just astounding to me, like one, just realizing how much I actually knew, you know, that, that, that it's easy to take for granted, but, but also just that, you know, if you can, if you can dial back and be patient it's really rewarding, I found, to just be able to help people to see that little light go on where, you know, they start connecting the dots and they're able to, like, make something appear on the screen for the first time. And that experience of, like, I made that. I made that happen. And I feel like that's one of the most exciting things about software and, and programming is that experience of being able to create and make something, you know, come to life in that way. And I like just mentoring as an experience is something I think is valuable in a lot of ways beyond, you know, just the immediate being able to help someone things like it's, it's, it's a cool experience being a mentor as well. And I think it's really important too, as a mentor to like, have good mentors yourself. I was, I was really lucky to have David just show up in my high school one day. <laughs> and I've been really lucky consistently with the mentors in my life. Like in my internship that I mentioned, I worked with fantastic engineers who are really good teachers. And it's difficult to figure out how to be a good teacher without having first had good teachers yourself. And so like, regardless of the level of experience I have, I think I will always want to have that mentor relationship so that I can keep learning. Like, one of the things too is a lot of my mentors are quite different from mine. Like I am a, a very quiet introverted person. I would not say I'm very charismatic. I would say David is the opposite of all those things. And so <laughs> wanting to, to build those skills myself, it's good to have a role model who has them. Well, thank you for that compliment. Yeah. That's really interesting that you said to find a mentor that's the opposite of yourself. I literally just heard the same thing said by a different person last week that was like, yeah, you should totally find someone who you want to be or emulate. And I thought that was really good advice. I agree with that completely. Yeah, I think that it kind of, there's a lot of conversation around diversity in computer science. And like that, that's definitely a problem. Like women do not have the representation they should. I've always gone through classes and been, you know, one of three women in the class. But I think one of the ways in which we can approach this besides just increasing the enrollment numbers is focusing on 
commonalities, kind of what I mentioned before, like at, at from the perspective of mentors who are, you know, different than their students and maybe like a, a male mentor trying to mentor a female student, like focusing on your commonalities rather than kind of naturally gravitating towards people who are like you, trying to find commonalities with people who are different from you. And I think that's important from the student perspective. It's less about finding commonalities, more about, you know, like you said, finding the things you want to emulate, like looking at other groups of people and, and figuring out what they're good at and, you know, what things you would like to take from them. <laughs> so, yeah, that's been an interesting challenge I've noticed in the school system is that, you know, in the elementary school years, boys and girls are equally competent and interested in this material. By the time they get to high school, we have that 70 30 split of males versus females. And uh, in the middle school, the numbers are all over the place. But in the formal classes, it seems to be at 70-30 split by seventh grade. And I can't really find like any single root cause that causes that. Um, unfortunately, I think I saw some stuff this week with Computer Science Education Week, where students as young as first grade are working with small robots in small groups. And there always seems to be the extrovert boy that is like, it's a robot. I'm going to be the one that plays with it. And he kind of gatekeeps access to girls who are like, it's my turn. And uh, it's really discouraging to see that behavior ingrained at such a young age. And um, any attempt I try to address it at the high school level, well, not any attempt, but I feel like a lot of times I can come off as the creepy old guy trying to encourage you know, high school age girls to be more interested in computer science. It's a hard place for me to be. Yeah. I don't think you're the creepy old guy. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's often kind of, I, th I think, you know, this is kind of a larger topic in society right now. It's like, it's, it's kind of ingrained in women to be meek and to not be as confident. Mm -hmm. And that's really hard to overcome. And like, people don't even, you know, that, that sounds terrible. I, I don't think people consciously do that all the time. I don't think men are consciously trying to speak over women all the time, but it, it's, definitely happened to me all over the place it's happened at work it's happened in interviews like and i think getting over that is definitely really tough but some of the things that have helped me are like to see and celebrate women's accomplishments like every time i hear about grace hopper it makes me so happy and uh i know one time in high school uh david took a few other like uh, female students and i to a kind of a, a celebration of women's accomplishments and the, the whole thing like you know, there, there were male allies there, but the, the topic of the night was, you know, women bragging loudly about the things that they've accomplished, because that's not something that's encouraged for us to do, but it's something that it builds our confidence and also changes how other people see us. Because the thing is, like, it's easy to brag, and it's, it's kind of saddening that people will just kind of implicitly believe that the more you say it. So, like, the, the more frequently you brag about how smart you are, like, the more inclined people are to believe it, because we're pretty suggestible as humans. And, you know, when women don't do that, that kind of subtly over time changes the perspective of us. And so we have to very intently, I, I can't think of the word I'm trying to say, but, you know, be very intentional about bragging about ourselves, regardless of how uncomfortable it is, regardless mm -hmm. of whether we think we deserve it or not. I also think it's really important for women to also amplify other women, like empowered women, empower women. So when we step up and, and say, look, look at this thing Emily did. Isn't that cool? Like yeah. that's something that we should be doing to highlight and amplify others' accomplishments. For sure. And I know I've, I've been to the Grace Hopper conference virtually because it was, it was during COVID times. But that was a huge component of it was there would be these, you know, networking circles where women just talk about the amazing things that they've done and you just meet all these strangers who have done really cool things. And it it goes in both directions, like you said, like you get to raise them up and also kind of be encouraged yourself and have something to look forward to. It sounds like just being exposed to that culture was a powerful experience for you. For sure. You know, I was thinking about our conversation earlier about role models and finding, finding someone to look up to that you're like, you're a really cool person. I, I admire you and having strong women as role models 
makes it much easier for us to operate a certain way when we interact with other people and stay solid within ourselves and confident within ourselves and and not you know cave in. And when all the examples around us of women are you know, kind of backing off and caving in and and just, you know, being submissive as, you know, in the way that they interact with the world. Those are the sort of patterns we pick up and learn. And like, likewise, you know, the, the mixed gender conversations and things that happen, we, we pick up on those play of dynamics, right? The things that we see. And if we have, if we have strong role models, then you know, it it helps us shift those other conversations. So like, you know, you, if we have more experience with these things, like the, the Grace Hopper conference and, you know, being, being able to go into these other environments that have, have a culture built around strong women and supporting being a strong woman, then you can take some of those things back with you in these other environments and then also be a role model for others. Because people see you being strong and standing up for yourself, being confident, and they might have the same reaction to you of like, wow, I really admire her. She's really cool, right? And then they start to emulate those things too. And so like these cultural dynamics, they, they spread. And it's like this subconscious spreading thing that happens. But maybe if we can get more experiences in these positive environments, we can iteratively, you know, take some of those things back with us and influence our other environments that, that maybe aren't so healthy. Yeah, I agree. And I think also like, it's important to be honest and open about kind of where you started because, you know, it's easy if you're a really confident woman walking into the room for people to think you've always been that way. And I think it's important to tell the stories about when you weren't because that's, that's how other people are going to connect with you and see a path forward for themselves. Definitely. I, I'll, I'll start by telling a story. I think it's just kind of a million small experiences. I was a strong student in high school. I was very good at math. And we had study halls where we'd sit in the auditorium and we'd all be doing homework. And students would often go to the guy in my math class who knew less than I did and ask for help. And I would just sit there and listen to him sort of poorly help the other students and mostly just brag about himself and just be quiet and, you know, think about how angry it made me, but not really be able to speak up or say anything. And I'm very different now. I have, because of the exposure that I've had, I am much more quick to shut that down and to give a different perspective when someone's acting that way. But how cool would it have been if that guy would have been like, you know, don't ask me, ask Emily. That that's a really important point because I hear women talk about this problem all the time, and I don't think the solution is a hundred percent in the women's hands. I, I think that it's it's men in the room. My own personal experience: uh, most of my career has been spent in government contracting space, and in that space, the the percentage of women to men is much higher. It's still not great, but I think there's a, a better attempt at um, inclusion and during recruiting. Uh, I think that um, there's a lot of uh, just forces in that environment that are more amenable to that as a career path for women. And then when I started consultancy with my two business partners, Kim and Karen, that was like an unheard of thing that I had two women business partners. And at the time we started it, I didn't think it was that big of a deal at all. But then we were suddenly in the commercial space and People thought it was like some scam I was running to be a minority-owned company in. My partner was my wife. Or I'd go into a meeting and somebody thought I brought a secretary. And I was like, no, she's an engineer and she's good, if not as better than me. And, uh, you know, it was, it opened my eyes to the assumptions that people make, you know, about like what the consulting rates even should be for men versus women. And, you know, it's in that environment, I learned that I had to speak up. I had to you know, represent to be a solution to that problem. And I think, uh, you know, you can get in an argument with other guys where they aren't even convinced there's a problem to solve. They'll start talking about, oh, well, women just aren't as interested in this career path. It's like, I've known plenty that are and end up leaving. I think definitely having support from both sides has been really important because it is typically like men in, in places of authority and to have them 
be encouraging and, you know, kind of not, not necessarily forcing you into the spotlight, but definitely trying to, to raise you up and encourage you to, to speak out means a lot. Yeah. I found most of the teams I've been on, I was like the only woman on the team or one of two, maybe. And early on when nobody knows you, people make a lot of assumptions about things. Right. And the typical thing I've seen happen is when you've got a, a woman programmer is often, you know, the bit is flipped, you know, pretty early on of, of that, Oh, that, you know, she's, she's doesn't know what she's doing and stuff. We, sh- we don't need to, you know, listen to what she says kind of thing. And then, then it becomes this initial conversations and how things are framed tend to affect a lot of how the relationships on the team are moving forward. And one of the things that I sort of learn as, I guess, just like an adaptive thing is I was really smart. So what I do with the first thing on the team, I'd find out what the hardest problem was that none of the guys could solve and figure it out. And then I would go <laughs> after that one. Like my, you know, my, my first thing on the team, I would go and tackle the, the hardest thing. And I found that, you know, once you kick the ass of the biggest baddie on the, on the yard, right. Respect. <laughs> <laughs> and so I didn't, I ended up like not having problems moving forward and that the guys would be more submissive toward me even as opposed to the other way around. But it's, it's like, you know, you come into a, a culture that is, is sort of like dominated by certain sort of ways of thinking in this sort of like masculine hierarchy sort of alpha male thing going on. And I found that if that's the dominant culture, you have to learn to kind of like play that game and like stake yourself in that game. And generally speaking, in this engineering world, intelligence is fairly respected. And so I've at least found that that's been a way for me to like operate and be able to, you know, reset that playing field anyway. This episode is sponsored by Compiler, an original podcast from Red Hat discussing tech topics big, small, and strange. Compiler unravels industry topics, trends, and the things you've always wanted to know about tech through interviews with the people who know it best. On their show, you will hear a chorus of perspectives from the diverse communities behind the code. Compiler brings together a curious team of Red Hatters to tackle big questions in tech, like what is technical debt? What are tech hiring managers actually looking for? And do you have to know how to code to get started in open source? I checked out the Should Managers Code episode of Compiler, and I thought it was interesting how the hosts spoke with Red Hatters who are vocal about what role, if any, that managers should have in code bases and why they often fight to keep their hands on keys for as long as they can. Listen to Compiler on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you listen to podcasts. We'll also include a link in the show notes. Our thanks to Compiler for their support. Well, speaking of games, Artie, uh, one of the things that Emily mentions in her bio is playing Dungeons and Dragons. And this is an area where, you know, as, as, you know, well as I know Emily from her high school years, this is not something I know much about Emily at all. So I'd like to talk about that. Uh, player or DM, Emily? Both. But I I really enjoy DMing because it's kind of, it's, it's all about creating problems to solve, in my opinion. Like you throw out a bunch of story threads. And, and the way I approach things is I try, actually, unlike a lot of DMs, I do not do a lot of world building for places my players haven't been. I pretty much, they're a bright light at the center of the world and anything the light doesn't touch doesn't exist. And I haven't written it and I don't really look at it that often. So I'm constantly throwing out, you know, story threads to try and and see what they latch onto. And I'll kind of dive into their character backstory to see what they are more predisposed to be interested in. And it's kind of like a, like writing a a weekly webcomic, you know, you don't have like necessarily a a set beginning and end, and you don't really know where you're going to end up in between, but you end up with all these cool threads and you can tie them together in new and interesting ways. And just kind of seeing the connections between those and being able to change what you want something to be on the fly is, is really cool and just kind of very stimulating mentally for me. So it's kind of like a, a puzzle exercise the whole time. And it is also an interesting social 
exercise because you're trying to balance the needs of each person. And, you know, I feel like D&D allows you to know people on a really deep level because a lot of times our characters are just that, that we're playing. You know, I, I guess I didn't really explain what D&D is. I just kind of made an assumption that people would know. It's a tabletop role-playing game where you make a character and you're you're usually kind of heroic and you're going about on this adventure trying to help people and solve problems and these characters tend to be just naturally an extension of ourselves and so you get to see all the things that subconsciously the person doesn't realize about themselves but that show up in their character Hmm. and so i think that's really cool so do you have a a weekly game or, or how often do you play i try to run a weekly game college often gets in the way how many players It ranges from three to four, sometimes five. It's really cool because it's also most of them are people that I met during the pandemic. So we we play predominantly online and this is the way we've gotten to know each other. We've become really close in the the year or so since we started playing together through the game that I DM and through the game that one other person in the group DMs. And uh, it's cool. It's, It's definitely a way to kind of transcend the boundaries of of zoom and of video calls in general Hmm. how did you end up getting into that there was uh, a it was just a friend group in high school someone said hey i would like to run a dungeons and dragons game like do you want to play and i said oh what's that and i've always loved books and reading so it was kind of a natural progression to go from you know reading a story to making a story collaboratively with other people and so that just immediately i had a connection with it and i loved the game and that's been a huge part of of my hobbies and like my my outside of tech life ever since. Yeah, I played D anD D as a kid um, in the late seventies, early eighties. But my mom took all my stuff away from me when that Tom Hanks movie came out that started the whole satanic panic thing. And so I didn't play for a long time until my own kids were interested after getting hooked on magic and seeing my own kids interested in D anD D the story building, the writing, the math that they had to do. Like, I don't know why any parent wouldn't encourage their kids to, to play this game. It's just phenomenal. The, the, the collaborative, creative, sharing, math. It's got yeah. everything. Yeah. And like, I'm, I'm an introverted person. So like, it, it takes a lot to make me feel motivated to be in a group with other people consistently. But D&D does that. And it, it does it in a way that's not, I guess, prohibitive to people who are naturally shy. Because you're, you're pretending to be someone else and you're not necessarily having to, to totally be yourself and you're able to explore the world through a lens that you find comfortable. So, okay. And I guess also it kind of goes back to our conversation about teaching, you know, being a DM. A lot of my players are people who have not played before or very, very new. Like maybe they've read a lot about it. Maybe they've watched some shows, but they maybe haven't necessarily played. And so it... D&D does require a lot of math and there's a lot of optimization. Like you can get very into the weeds with your character sheet, trying to make the, the most efficient battle machine, whatever. And that's not really always approachable. And so, you know, especially when I started introducing my younger siblings to D&D, I used versions, D&D-like games that were similar, but not quite D&D, like less math, like a very simplified character sheet. So you're looking at fewer numbers, there's fewer calculations involved, just to kind of, get the essence because there's there's like a few core concepts in D&D. You have like six statistics about your character that are that they change a little bit between like different types of role-playing games, but they're they're pretty universal, I think, for the most part. It's um constitution, strength, dexterity, wisdom, intelligence, and charisma. And once you kind of nail those concepts down and once a person understands what those skills are supposed to mean, that really opens the gates to understanding a lot more about the core mechanics of D&D outside of like the spell casting stuff and all the, the other math that's involved. And I think like just simplifying the game down to that makes them fall in love with the narrative and collaborative aspect of the game and then be more motivated to figure out the math if they weren't already predisposed to that. So if somebody were interested in picking up a game, you know, trying to figure it out, where would they start? It really depends on the age group. If you're going to play with, uh, high school students, I would definitely say if none of you have played before, then pick up a player's handbook, maybe a dungeon master's guide if, if you're going to DM and you've never DM before, because it gives a lot of tips for just kind of dealing with the, the problems that arise in a collaborative storytelling game. And then probably just a, a pre-written module so you don't have to worry about building your own story because these modules are 
kind of stories that are written by professional game developers and like you can kind of take pieces of them and, and iterate it on yourself so you don't have to start with nothing. But if you are going for like a much younger audience, I can't remember off the top of my head what it was, but it's essentially like an animal adventure game and it's it's very much D&D without using the word D&D because I think it's a different company and it's copyrighted and whatnot. But yeah, you have these little cute like dog characters and you know they're trying to defeat like an evil animal overlord who wants to ruin the town festival. And it's very family friendly. Like there's, there's no death like there is in, in regular D and D and it's just a chance to kind of engage with the character creation aspect of it. That's really cool. So we're about heading towards our time, but I really appreciate you coming on the show, Emily. And I wanted to just ask you if you could give any advice to young girls looking to get into tech or software engineering, what advice would you give them? I think don't be afraid to walk off the path, right? Like a lot of my life has been kind of bucking like the pre-written path that a lot of people are told is the best one. And because it didn't work for me or whatever reason. And I think it's important just to not be afraid of that and to be courageous in, in making your own path. That's great advice. So should we head into reflections, everyone? Who wants to start us off? I'll start with one. I mentioned that uh, when I asked Emily about her path into college, that I was interested in a, a similar path for my own kids. I had a really strange college path that I started out a music major, ended up a computer science major, and uh, had a, a you know non-traditional path. And uh, I've always believed that college is what you make of it, not where you went. Like where you went might help you get your first job, but from then on, it's networking, it's personality, it's how well you did the job. And uh, talking to Emily about her path just reinforces that to me and helps me plot a path for what I might have my own children do. I have triplet boys that are in ninth grade. So, you know, we're starting to think about that path. And not only would a path through Virginia, Northern Virginia Community College, save us a fortune, you know, it would also be a guaranteed admission into uh, Virginia Tech or one of the other Virginia schools. So it's definitely something worth to consider. So I appreciate that knowledge, Emily. I've been thinking a lot about how we can better teach people that don't have a lot of experience yet. Like I, you know, we've, we've got so much stuff going on in this field of software engineering and it's really easy to not realize how far that, you know, like this sort of plateau of knowledge that we live in and, and work with every day to, to do our jobs and how important it is to bring up new folks that are trying to learn and, one of the things you said, Emily, was about teaching is being able to find those shared things where we've got a common understanding about something, whether you, know, you, you use metaphor of like mail delivery to, to talk about IP addresses, for example, but to be thinking in those ways of, you know, how do we find something shared and be able to get more involved with mentoring and, you know, kind of, you know, reaching back and help helping support people to learn because software is super cool. It really is. Like we can build amazing, amazing things. It'd be awesome if more of us were, you know, able to get involved and, in, you know, have that experience and having good mentors, having good role models, all of those things make a big difference. I just love the conversation that we had about men and women in technology. And for me, I love to reiterate the fact that empowered women empower women. And I even want to take that a step further by saying, you know, especially right now in our field, empowered men also empower women. So I think that that's something that really needs to be said and heard and not perceived as, you know, like, like Dave said, oh, he, he felt like the creepy guy encouraging girls or women to get involved in tech. Like, I, I think it's cool. I and mean, Dave has personally, he, he's mentored me. 
he's he's gotten me more interested. I mean, I just I used to do assistant work and now I'm learning programming. And it's because I've been encouraged to do so by a lot of different men in the industry that I've been lucky to know. Well, thank you, Mandy. You certainly have a who's who of uh, mentors. I am very, very lucky to know the people I know. Even be named on that list of people you know. (laughs) I think the thought I keep coming back to is is one that I mentioned but didn't really crystallize in my head until this morning when I was kind of preparing for this recording. Is you know, I I listened to David's interview and I thought about like, oh wow, he did really well on the podcast. Like all the all these things that I wish I I did, and it it really crystallized the idea that your mentor should be different from you and should have skills you don't, and you should seek them out for that reason. And I, you know, mentors tend to be the people that I run into, and I haven't really thought about it that way before, but that kind of gives me a different perspective to go out and intentionally seek out those people. That definitely gives some food for thought for me. (laughs) I love intentionally seeking out people who are different from myself in general, just to learn and get perspectives that I might have never even thought of before. But with that, I guess we will wrap up. Emily, it's been so nice having you on the show. Congratulations and best of luck on your exams. I know I can't believe you took the time to do this with your exams coming up. I know. I'm procrastinating as hard as I can. (laughs) (laughs) But it's been so nice to have you on the show. Dave, thank you for coming and being a guest panelist. And Artie, it's always wonderful to host with you. So I just want to wish everybody a happy new year. And we will see you next week. 